We're going to be reading today from Acts chapter 19. Acts 19, we're going to start with verse 23 today and read down to verse 41. So we continue on our journeys with the Apostle Paul, though he's actually uh, not journeying at the moment. He's settled in Ephesus for a while and has been ministering there, and we're going to see today uh, some of the effects of that ministry and the, uh, the change that is coming over the culture there in Ephesus. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Ephesus, and I was telling you about how full of uh, occult practices and superstitions and different, uh, different uh, types of idolatry were going on there. Uh, even Shakespeare uh, mentions it in one of his plays about uh, the reputation that Ephesus had as a, as a center for all these occult practices, and today we're going to see what happens at the temple or what happens in reference to the temple of Artemis or Diana, uh, depending on what translation you, you, you're using. Acts 19, 23. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were in, enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companion in, companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us today. 
Well, pheasants, uh, pheasants the, the bird pheasants that I was hunting this past week while I was away, uh, they uh, go out and feed twice a day. And in the middle of the day, they sit on their roost, which is on the ground somewhere. And, uh, and so we go around trying to hunt these birds. Uh, they go out early in the morning to the fields and they feed, especially uh, in the cornfields, uh, especially the ones who've been, where they've been harvested and the corn's lying on the ground, some, of the, some that didn't get harvested. And then they'll go back on their roost for the afternoon and come back out in the evening and, and feed again. And, uh, and, and myself and nine other men, we were trying to disturb this pattern in their lives. And we did for about, really disturbed about 25 of the birds. And, uh, and I scared a bunch of them. They're still out there nervous. But their way of life was severely disturbed. And uh, a great disturbance came to the lives of the Ephesians. You know, the pheasant were thrown off their regular routine. And the Ephesians as well were thrown off their regular routine because of the gospel. It came in and it disturbed their way of life. And we re- that's what we've read about here today. Now as we uh, approach this passage and we wonder, you know, this is, a, this is just a, a little account of, of a riot that almost breaks out. It doesn't actually tell us that, that anybody uh, heard the gospel or got saved. You know, so why is this here? Why, why is this in, in the text? Why did Luke include this as he's recording this? Well, we know that Luke was a physician, but he's kind of acting like a lawyer in this section of Scripture. Uh, Luke probably wrote this down uh, for the same reason that he, back in chapter 18, that he mentioned Gallio's pronouncement in chapter 18. Back in chapter 18, some Jews brought accusations against Paul, and Gallio said, you know, I'm not listening to this. This has nothing to do with me, and, and you can go on your merry way. And so the re- same reason that he uh, recorded that in chapter 18, he records this in chapter 19. The city clerk, like Gallio, demonstrates that Christianity was not illegal. Uh, it posed no threat to the civic order. Opposition to it was purely personal. And that's what we see here today. There were surely many opponents to Christianity in Luke's day. And he's, as he's writing this uh, this account uh, of the early church, uh, he is letting people know that there have been Roman officials who have made pronouncements about Christianity that it is not illegal. In Corinth, in Ephesus, these uh, officials have ruled that it is not unpatriotic or subversive to the, to the public order And so Luke is sharing that, citing these legal precedents in order to anticipate possible objections and head them off in his writings. So that's there, and that would have been important. But I also believe that Luke is showing us how Jesus continued to transform people's lives and the societies in which they lived through the preaching of the gospel. You remember early in the book, uh, it, it, uh, Luke tells us that he's writing these things uh, to tell us what Jesus 
continued to do and to teach after he ascended. So even though Christ ascended to heaven, he is continuing to work. He is continuing, continuing to do something. And then Luke proceeds to tell us how the early church was formed. Christ is working through uh, his disciples, Peter and Paul and Barnabas and, and the others who were out proclaiming the good news of Christ. And so what we have here is how Jesus continued to transform and change people's lives. And we, we see here the results of real change in people's lives. Lives were drastically changing. As people responded to Paul's preaching, they were moving their worship from pagan idols to the living and true God. And this was happening not only in Ephesus, but throughout the whole region that surrounded Ephesus. Now Ephesus, as we have read and we've talked about a little bit in previous weeks, Ephesus was home to the temple of Artemis. And it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a huge temple. It was 220 feet by 425 feet. So that's, that's big, 425. That's bigger than a football field. A football field is 300 uh, feet long uh, and a little extra for the end zones. But you see there, it was a massive, massive temple. It had 127 marble columns that were 65 feet high. And that's, that's twice as high as this, I'm guessing. Not that I know. I'm pretty sure this is about 30 feet. So just a massive, massive thing. And in the center of it, there was a, a statue of the goddess. And she was kept in an inner room in the temple. And this image was of a woman covered with breasts. And they were not actually worshiping the classical Greek goddess Artemis or classical Roman goddess uh, Diana. What they were actually was worshiping an older goddess that they named Artemis, kind of, you know, put the name on her there. Uh, kind of the, the, the goddess they were actually worshiping was something like what we would call Mother Nature. She was a fertility goddess and uh, it, kind of a pantheistic worship of nature was going on there. So that was, that was what was happening there in Ephesus. And the temple was very important to the city, uh, to the city's reputation, having this wonder of the world there, and also to the wealth of the city because you know, pilgrims came there to this great temple uh, and they worshipped the goddess Diana there. And many people uh, were engaged in that. Since Paul came along and started preaching Christ, people were... Uh, turning away from worshiping Artemis, and so they no longer went to the temple of Artemis. People no longer participated in her worship, and they refrained from buying the little silver shrines that Demetrius and his fellow workers made and sold there at the temple. You could take it home with you and worship Diana in the privacy of your own home, I suppose. That's what you would do with one of these little silver shrines. Demetrius' words in verse 26 are very telling. He says, uh, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. I mean, that seems like it's pretty self-evident. If you, if you go and get a piece of wood and carve it out, uh, that doesn't make it a god. You know, you would think, why can't they see this? That this is not, this is just something that's made by hands. But... 
uh, that's what they believed. And of course, that's what Paul was certainly preaching. We've seen, you know, we don't know exactly what Paul was saying in this instance, what Demetrius is quoting, but we can look back at different uh, speeches that we have recorded of Paul's, for example, in Lystra, where he says essentially what Demetrius is accusing him of, saying, uh, Acts 14, Paul says to the, list, to the Lystrans, we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things, these idols, to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And then uh, in Athens, back in Acts 17, Paul says this similar thing to the people there. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The, time, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So the effects of this teaching that Paul was putting out there, the gospel that he was putting out, that, that gods made with hands are not gods, caused a huge disturbance in the Ephesian way of life. Not only was the worship of Artemis threatened, but the functional gods of the people were threatened. And that's really what I want to talk about today, these functional gods. What do I mean by functional gods? The god that is actually functionally being worshipped. You see, Demetrius was raising a ruckus in the name of Artemis. But what was really bothering him? What was really most important to him? Was it Artemis? Or was it the money that he got from selling silver shrines of the temple of Artemis? Look at verse 25. Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And Paul's going around and ruining it. And down in verse 27, and there's danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute. So he's saying, you know, our way of life is threatened by the gospel, especially our wealth, uh, the way that we make our living. So what's really important to Demetrius was his wealth, even more than the honor of Artemis. His stated God was Artemis, but his functional God was his wealth. And it would also seem that civic pride played uh, a part as well as a functional God. The people are rioting because, uh, because he says in verse 27 there, that the, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. What's happening here is they're saying is that not only is our way of life being threatened, but the temple of Artemis is counted as nothing. Not that Artemis herself is being counted as nothing, but the temple is being counted as nothing. And of course the temple was the pride of Ephesus. And if uh, nobody cares about the temple anymore, then Ephesus Nobody will care about Ephesus anymore. So there was some civic pride 
pride in being an Ephesian and having this great wonder of the ancient world there that was causing them to get upset. Their way of life was being disturbed. Their, their functional idol was being threatened. So they riot. Well, the gospel creates a disturbance with people's functional gods. Because as Jesus said, you cannot worship God and mammon. Of course, mammon means things, stuff. You cannot worship God and things. You'll love one and hate the other. There's only room in our hearts for one God, for one, one thing that's most important. You remember that movie, uh, City Slickers, and uh, Billy Crystal's having a midlife crisis, and so he and his friends go off on a, uh, on a roundup, and they go out and become cowboys for, uh, for a week, and they bring in the herd. And, and the great lesson that you get at the end that Billy Crystal learns and he's able to come back and cope with his life is one thing. You know, he recognizes that, that he wants to make his family the most important thing. You know, that's kind of a nice, heartwarming thing. But he's on to something there. Because everybody has something, one thing, that is most important to him. Now, Billy Crystal, in that movie, uh, you know, I think at the beginning you see that his career was very important to him and it wasn't going very well. And so he was having this crisis. And, he, and he, after the roundup, he comes to the point where he realizes... There's something more important than my job. It's my family. Well, he's no better off. That's going to let him down as well. Functional gods cannot satisfy. Only the true and the living God can. If he said the one thing and it's the Lord, then, hey, that would be a great movie. But it didn't end that way. It wasn't a Christian movie. So anyway, uh, that's where we are on that. Uh, Demetrius and his friends and the Ephesians were disturbed because their functional gods got shaken up. And Jesus calls us to himself. Uh, the call of Jesus to turn from sin, from idols, from functional gods to him, the true and living God, it will create a disturbance to you because you are having to leave the false gods you love and are tempted to pursue. It interrupts your way of life. You no longer are calling the shots in your life. You have another God. See, these functional gods, you notice here that they are subservient to the people who worship them. You know, uh, Demetrius loves his wealth, and that's his functional God, but it's being taken away from him. If, if, if the God of wealth is so great, how can he be taken away if, he's a really, if it's really truly a God? So it's not a God in, in, in the sense that we think of the true and living God, the all-powerful God. When you have the all-powerful God in your life, nothing can take that away from you. But functional gods can always be taken away from you. We like the functional gods because we can control them and we can use them for whatever we want. And that's what Demetrius and his friends were doing. Everybody worships something. We all have that one thing. Everyone ascribes worth and importance to something, most of all, in your life. Something in your life is always most important. And there are only two options. You can worship the creator or you can worship some created thing or person. 
Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 1. Very important uh, text. He describes human beings. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. This tendency to worship created things rather than the Creator is something that we humans continue to struggle with. Even as Christians, we do it. As Calvin said, our hearts are idle factories. We, we often run to created things for happiness, for joy, when we should be running to the Lord. Being a Christian is not a list of behaviors one engages in or refrains from. I used to define myself as a Christian by what I didn't do. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't do this and I didn't do that. I didn't go out and get drunk with them and I didn't you know, date girls that weren't Christians. And, and if you did, then you, were, you, know, you certainly weren't a Christian. So I was defining it based on works, which is not even the gospel. That's, salvation is by grace. It's a free gift of God. It's not based on what you do. So behaviors, it's not what Christianity is about. Being a Christian means we, by grace, through faith, are in a covenant relationship with Jesus, with the Lord. Okay, so the, the clearest example we have on earth of a covenant relationship is marriage. Marriage between a man and a woman. And the Bible speaks of, of the relationship Christ has with his people uh, as uh, like a marriage. And to, uh, to worship other things is adultery, spiritual adultery. So when we go run off to uh, other things, created things, to find what only God can give us, we're actually engaging in spiritual adultery. That theme runs all the way through the Bible. Hosea. You know, read the book of Hosea. Hosea marries a prostitute, and, and God's saying, this is the picture of my people and the relationship they have with me. My people are unfaithful to me. They're running off with other gods. It's all through the Old Testament, and here we see it in the New Testament as well. David Paulson says something great in a book called uh, Seeing with New Eyes. He says, people are always doing something with God. You're always doing something with God. Think about that. Human beings either love God or despise Him and love something else. We take refuge in God or flee from Him and find refuge in something else. We set our hopes in God or we turn from Him and hope in something else. We fear God or we ignore him and fear something else. What are your functional gods that you run to? What are the things that you feel like you need? I've given you a list of questions that are in that same book that I just quoted, 
Uh, if you didn't pick one up, there's copies at, at every exit uh, in the sanctuary. X-ray questions is a chapter in that book. And it's a series of 35 questions that, that ask the same question basically in a different way to help you identify what your functional gods are. And if, if you read that, you realize you have to really examine the basic motivations of your life. Why do you do the things you do? Why do you live like you do? Why are you pursuing the things that you pursue? Um, just to give you a, a sampling of some of these questions. What do you love? What do you want, desire, crave, lust, and wish for? What desires do you serve and obey? What do you seek, aim for, and pursue? Uh, what do you think you need? What are your felt needs? Who do you trust? Whose performance matters? On whose shoulders does the well-being of your world rest? I think that one's for parents who, who uh, live their lives through their children. Who can make your life better, make it work, make it safe, make it successful? Whom must you please? Whose opinion of you counts? Those are the people who, who might live for other people's approval. There's a lot of us here today. Who are your role models? What kind of person do you think you ought to be or want to be? On your deathbed, what would sum up your life as worthwhile? What gives your life meaning? You can read the rest. There's a number of them. How do you, how do you live for yourself? How do you implicitly say, if only, to get what you want, avoid what you don't want, keep what you have? I would, I would encourage you to read through those and think through those. Every question is a really telling. And, and uh, you know, for me, you know, I, I read that list, and it, and it brings me to repentance. Because, well, it should. That's what the, the point is. To turn from these things that we tend to run to instead of God and to turn back to the Lord. And there we will find grace and mercy in our time uh, uh, of unfaithfulness, the Lord will welcome us back. He pursues us. You notice here, Artemis can't stick up for herself. She's not sticking up for her people either. You know, she's not helping them out in any way, shape, or form. Maybe it's because she doesn't really exist. Yes, that's the truth. But our God pursues us. He, he, he took on human flesh. He became a, a person. He came after us. He, he came to help us where we could not help ourselves. He came to, to pay the penalty for our sins that we couldn't pay ourselves. He came to fulfill all righteousness that we could not complete ourselves. He came and he did it. That's what makes Christianity different from all other religions in the world. It's what makes Jesus different from all other religious, so-called religious leaders. There are out there. Jesus comes after us. He seeks to have a relationship with us. He wants to be in that covenant relationship with you. All we have to do is turn to him. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He will not cast you aside if you call on him. Even if you've been unfaithful to him, now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. May God grant us grace to turn from our functional idols to the living and true God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for 
revealing yourself to us, giving us your word. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would help us. Lord, our hearts are so unfaithful. We find that, that we cannot control ourselves even sometimes, wanting the things that we want that we know you do not want us to have. Lord, forgive us and help us to, to understand that you are for us and you are withholding no good thing from us. You have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and you, you, you want our lives. You know, you, you order our lives and you have our best interests at heart even in the difficult things. Lord, we thank you that we know that you're with us. We do pray, as the choir sang a little while, that you would take our hands and walk with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and conclude by singing.